Hello, friend. Thank you once again for spending some time with me here on The Tully Show. Before we get the official proceedings underway, a very quick reminder, patreon.com slash Mike Tully, the only place you can hear all the news headlines the other Patreons don't want you to know about on The Tully Show, Rambling Man, A Million Different Music Pods, the only place you can hear me try and fail to play songs on guitar that I wrote on the Pulitzer Award-winning Patreon-exclusive video podcast, Shred, Shed, all that, and so much more at patreon.com slash Mike Tully, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. And now, with no further ado. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, Your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, Give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, the author of a pair of memoirs, one set in the world of high finance, the other of which was adapted into a feature film in 2020 entitled Odd Man Rush, a Harvard kid's hockey odyssey from Central Park to somewhere in Sweden with stops along the way. Hello and welcome, Bill Keenan. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you. You seem distracted. I I, No, I'm I'm just getting some stuff out of my way on my computer screen. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, Yeah. Are you a... How comfortable are you with virtual desktop uh mess um i i'm getting better at it i mean there's there's a lot of practice over the last couple of years so yeah I've, i also have like i don't do macs i have like the old school thing i guess it's, it's a thinkpad yeah um so it doesn't have all sorts of like you know bells and whistles it's pretty like it's easy to keep focused i'd say yeah i have uh computer I, I did go to the mac thing because i need it for a couple of work things and i i it literally i i, I would say i've tapped maybe two percent of the potential of the machine that i paid a premium on that that sounds like a mac user hell yeah baby um you come uh, recommended by a, a friend and a listener so thank you to marion for putting us in touch with one another any friend of hers is a, a friend of mine so we're going to be talking today about your life as portrayed in a couple of books and for the benefit of people who aren't familiar with your life and your books, let's just lay out your, your, your biography to this point in broad strokes and let me know if I've got this about right. In short, the story of your life to this point, very good hockey player, very good student. You went to Harvard. You play hockey at Harvard. Injuries derail any shot you might have of pursuing your dream in the NHL. You play a few years professionally in Europe, then return home and go to business school. You then enter the world of finance, which you ultimately ditch to um, pursue your current position working with magazine editor Graydon Carter at his latest venture, Airmail. In broad strokes, is that about it? That's exactly it. Yeah. To what extent would you say the path of your life has been intentional and to what extent has it been pure happenstance i know it's obviously you didn't set out to follow this path exactly but how how accidental have those major bullet points been all told yeah i like it you're making me think i haven't i haven't been asked that question you know what comes to mind is i think it was very very intentional at the outset like it was 
it started with hockey and there's nothing happenstance about that. That was like, I, I tried it. You try sports as a kid. This is what I love to do. It's, you know, all the, you know, cliches felt alive, blah, blah, blah. That was it. I knew I was at home on the ice. And then I'd say from there, as things happen, it gets more and more there. I mean, you know, you meet people and all of a sudden you start going in different directions that in no way, like when I was in college, I mean, all the way, certainly through high school, most of college, the idea of writing like an essay, just like a five paragraph essay was like, there's just no shot. Like, how am I, I got to call my mom? Maybe she can help me out with this. Maybe my sister did a paper that I can repurpose. And then, so the idea that I would then be so interested in writing was that that was I would say less intentional and more happenstance because it was something that I had kind of cultivated um, through writing emails in college to my friends. It wasn't like writing. I didn't take English classes. It wasn't like that. So it was sort of, so in that respect, I think it, it started, it was very intentional when I was younger. And then it just, you just kind of see where things take you. It, it's funny I've been disappointed that the the internet has transitioned to a medium of words, to a medium of images, to a medium of video, because for a weird second, and it was largely unremarked upon, we all became men and women of letters again out of the blue. You know, I've got I've got a printout, like a trove of emails that I sent to my girlfriend in 1997. And aside from the fact that they're poorly written and have next to no punctuation or capitalization, it's not that different from what you might find from like a, a poet from the 1700s. And now we're all just scrolling through TikTok again and we're kind of back where we started. I'm totally on board with that. I, I can't I, I, I basically cut myself off at Instagram like static photos. And I mean. Yeah, it's I, I I to this day like not to sound like I'm you know some snob, but I do think like your imagination, especially if you're a kid and you grew up and you you know I, honestly I would say maybe if you had a I I had a kind of a incredibly privileged and happy upbringing, but I think the imagination you cultivate when you're a kid that's gonna benefit you so much more later on and and um what am I trying to say I just think that like it's so much more interesting to read something whether it's a book or whatever it is and to be able to fill in and see it in your head than to have somebody just show you a bunch of stuff um in a video you know dancing or whatever you you've said that you didn't uh from the jump see yourself being uh, a man of of letters necessarily and that that sort of happened accidentally and yet bill in each of your books you mentioned um journaling events as they happen in case you might someday write a book about them when did that sort of spidey sense kick in that you might be living a memoir worthy life it was it was it I think hockey was the first, well, I don't think hockey was the first thing I did where I was like, this is something I love, like a pursuit that I love in life. And I knew that it it was like when you're a kid, like, you know, things don't end. It just like the summer goes on forever. And it was the first time I was 25 when I quit. And that basically that final season, <laughs> I kind of felt this looming ending and like, oh my God, this is actually, this is going to stop. Like, and then this is not going to be a part of my life. And so that's kind of where I was like, all right, well, that's that's not sitting well with me. How can I 
kind of extend this in a way that maybe physically I'm not going to play next year, but maybe I can get some stuff down and honestly, like for my own self, like relive these things. And the cool thing is like, okay, this is the story that happened. I want to write this down because like this makes me smile right now. Plus, if I write it down, I can like add in details that maybe like aren't totally factual, but that, you know, if I want to go tell my buddies or I want to tell my whatever, if I want to, you know, when I do go back home, if I want to tell myself in a couple of years, I can remember it in a certain way. So it was a way to sort of like capture that feeling that I had when I was playing and then kind of be able to hold on to it. Um, on the wiki for your book, your first book, Odd Man Rush, it suggest the Wikipedia itself suggests that um, it's similar to uh, one of my personal favorite books, the Jim Bouton baseball memoir, Ball Four. You're nodding your head. You're familiar with it now. Were you familiar? Books, yeah. w- were you familiar with it as you were uh, making notes for that? Did it inform it in any way? Particularly because it's not just a, a gritty not sensationalized, this is what day-to-day life is in pro sports book, but also told from the point of view of someone who can see the end of their career very clearly. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, that that's pro- one of my all-time favorites, just because okay. that was the original sports memoir. I mean, that was like, and, and honestly, like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I watched about two innings of, of the World Series, and they were awesome, and they were the last two innings of the season, but I'm not, you know, I'm not like a big baseball fan. But he, I, I had written a draft without really reading anything. And then I realized like, wow, this, this first draft really sucks. Like it meant a lot to me, but like, I remember thinking like, I, I can't show this to anybody. And I was like, well, why don't I just figure out the books that have been written by athletes about what they're doing? And that's kind of the first one you look up like sports memoirs, that's ball fours right at the top. I mean, there's some other good ones, but, but, um, you know, it's it's a little bit, you know, he was playing on the Yankees, right? Like he was at that, he was playing with like massive, huge celebrities, but still being writing, as you said, like he is the common man, like writing from the perspective of someone who's like, yeah, I'm here. But like, it's, it's, I, I don't necessarily, what was so compelling about him is that it wasn't like he felt like he necessarily belonged. And you could kind of see that in the writing because he was, he wasn't trying to, you know, he was, it was just felt re- very authentic which you never know if that is means he's an awesome writer or if that's actually who he is or some sort of combo. But um, I mean, even that last line, it, I, I, I want to say, because that's definitely a book after the first draft, I read that book, I did my list. And I remember he says something about the fact it's like this whole time, I think I'm holding on to this ball and yet it's the ball holding on to me. And, and, and I remember like something to that effect and thinking like, Jesus, this, like, I got to read this book again. Like that's the type of stuff where you're the guy's thoughts so deeply and he's so much loved what he was doing that it's, it doesn't really matter what sport it is. It just, it's going to, it landed with me for sure. So yes. So let's talk a little bit about the the book and the story that it tells um, hockey. First of all, uh, there, I can't, I've spent a decent amount of time in Manhattan. I don't know where there's a single ice rink outside of the places that people go skating at Christmas in Central Park and, and, and Rockefeller Center. How, how did that get its, as a fan, you grew up at the right time, Mark Messier and the Rangers yeah. and all that. I mean, I had a, a high school teacher who had to quit smoking cause she was, she'd seen the Rangers lose for so many years. She bet her students. She said, I will quit smoking if they oh. win the Stanley cup. And she actually had to follow through for on her. it. So that was yeah. the whole city was caught up in that. How were you able to, 
pursue, indulge that passion. I gather your parents indulged your, yeah. your, your passion to a, a fairly unusual degree. Yeah. Yeah. I, especially given, I think all hockey parents, I mean, it's no secret there there's like, they're kind of, you know, it's a special, it's a special breed to just basically have your weekends. And then as you get older, pretty much your life be taken over by your son or daughter's passion. Um, because like the, the, the driving to the rinks, it, you know, flying to the rinks and it doesn't, it's not just like the winter, you know, we start playing in the summer. It's, it's, it's outrageous in retrospect. Um, but it was, there was a rink up in, uh, I call it a rink. It was really like a pool for about 80% of the year. And then it became a rink for like December and January in uh, Central Park on the very north side up by 110th Street. It's called Lasker Rink. And, you know, there were these two really tiny rinks that were right next to each other. And that was, they had a program called North Park. And that's where I started, just skated one day. My parents, my dad took me up there and, um, you know, that combined with, like you said, the Rangers being kind of at peak Ranger, uh, kind of, you know, they, they were in the, they were in the finals and they won the cup and then it was them and the Devils, so all the teams, it was big at the time. And so those just sort of like came together and it's, you know, you, you don't know, like you and your kid, it wasn't, it's funny because they talk about like, as I got older, it was all about like, well, this is great sports. You learned about teamwork and, and, and camarade. And then you're thinking like, as a kid, like I'd like scoring goals. That's it. Like I didn't, it's great that you have friends and all this shit, but like when it's all said and done, like you don't play because of that. You play because you like the feeling it gives you. So that, that's just like, that's, that's such a cool thing to find when you're, because that's just like visceral. That's not like, you're not doing it for like, Oh, this is good because I'll learn how to be a team player. That's great. Yeah. Now you're skating around going three, two, one in your head as you try to make the shot exactly. to win the Stanley exactly. Cup over and over exactly. again. Yeah. So, so your parents were, were were very supportive of this. Explain what it means to have an ice rink in your living room. Um. So we, yeah. So it got to the point where I realized like there's only it's limited ice time right. up at Lasker Rink. And so I knew I was like, well, my friends, I, I, I ended up graduating from that sort of the New York City scene and going out to play on these teams in Long Island and Connecticut and New Jersey. And all my friends, I, when I'd stay over there after games, sometimes my parents would let me you know, stay the weekend if we had an early morning game the next night in some place in, you know, southern Jersey. And they'd have, you know, like in their in their basement or in their garage, they'd have like a, a, a a net set up and they'd be able to fire pucks. And I'm thinking like, I don't have that. Like, damn, like they get this resources outside of the rink. So I was like, well, I need a net. So I, so I went online one night and I bought a real net. And, and one day I, I, the doorman calls up. I lived on the seventh floor over on fifth Avenue. And he's like, yeah, I think, I think did someone order? There's like a massive thing. I was like, just, I was like, yes, let's get it up the back elevator and get this hockey net, bring it through. Like, uh, it was before my parents were home. I was in third grade, I think, and um, just set it up in a living room where they were renovating. So I knew it was good timing because everything was going to get destroyed anyways. And so I had a rink for about six months and I tried at one point some some ice in the winter to try to, you know, see if I could throw like a little bit of a layer. But that it, it didn't it didn't work. So I just like rollerblade around this little place and and, and shoot pucks and break windows. Uh, your mother shared some uh, words of wisdom 
that seemed to have become a recurring mantra for you, at least based on the book, um, specifically, don't be a bitch. Yeah. That's, yeah. And that's what I'm still... She sounds like a remarkable woman. <laughs> she, and, and she is definitely... She holds me to it Yeah, when, when I am being one. And I think that was one that, that resonated pretty loudly at every hockey game, whether it was my mom, my opponents, my coaches, my teammates... And I think it serves you well, you know, as, as you get older. Sure. How many people can say that they've had a, a crowd of people chant their name in unison in a foreign language about how bad they suck? That's where a mantra like that will come in handy. There you go. And yet yep. that, that's something you were up against. So how, how realistic were your uh, NHL dreams? I know that you not only were at Harvard at the same time as Jeremy Lin, I know your, your paths um, actually cross there, but I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Harvard is not a major feeder school for the other major pro sports. Like even when I, you showed up there, how realistic was it? Well, I, I'll tell you this right now. I, I, the, the guy that won the Norris trophy, I don't know if it might've been last year or the, I think it was last year. It might've been the year before it plays on the Rangers and he played at Harvard. He's oh, okay. from Long Island. Um, he's definitely the exception. I, but yeah, it's not it's not like it's going, you know, it's it's not I guess college is definitely a realistic route. I was not in the bucket that it was really I think by by junior hockey I had a pretty good sense that this would be a very very long shot. But that's, you know, that's okay. There's still there are other ways to kind of pursue it outside of um, you know, not you don't have to go to the NHL to continue to play hockey. Um but I knew I would say probably like when you're about 16 or 17, you have a pretty good sense like, OK, this is I'm probably not in that bracket. But 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 you still the cool thing is at some point you all have to funnel through a certain level. So you do still get to like play against and with guys that, you know, will make it. And you and you see, you know, that it's 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 a different level. Something happens kind of in that sort of 17, 18 year old range where. Those guys kind of separate themselves. Um, but you did, after enduring some injuries at Harvard, you did land at least uh, playing professionally in in Europe. How would you describe the world, not Europe, but the world of European professional hockey? There's like a blue collar nature to the sport yeah. that, that makes me imagine the lower rungs of the pros there. It's not going to be, you know, biking down a street with a baguette, with a a, bar, a, a beret on, you know, it's, it, oh. it, it has the potential to be pretty grimy. I'm picturing basically the Paul Newman movie, slap shot only with far better domestic beers yeah i mean yeah i mean th there's i'm not sure that, yeah it, it's funny because there's definitely that 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 grunginess to it and you know the, like i'm just thinking the last year i was there you know we would have there there's longer road trips where you know you'd have a guy that's you know, we, we stopped the bus and I'm like, oh, it's a smoke break for, for the driver. And it turns out like half the team in Germany smokes like, you know, like, so like they're like it, it's it's, um you know, they a lot of people would have like second jobs, things like that. They'd be, you know, the, the, the first time I showed up in Sweden, I, we were driving down the road when the guy, the, the manager of the team picked me up from the from the train station we were driving down the road and there's sort of this construction site and he slows down and i'm thinking oh just like this is prudent driving and then all of a sudden he stops and then one of the guys gets in the car 
And and then he starts talking to the guy, and I'm thinking like, oh, you must know him. And you know, he acknowledged me, but they're speaking Swedish. I have no idea what's going on. Then he drops him off, presumably at his home. Still nothing said. And I show up at practice that night, and that guy's the captain of the team. So you know, this is the the are there are a lot of um, every every day something new was going to happen that was you know. It, interesting in some respects and and those are these little things that happen i remember thinking like i i'm telling my mom and tell my friends and it's like and that was also sort of got me thinking like this is this is odd enough that this could be worth while telling a story because it wasn't going to be about me scoring goals or you know winning the championship that that that's was that's not the book like that's not and that's not whatever interests me it's sort of like just you know it's like a classic fish out of water type of stuff those are always the worst sports movies. It sounds good on paper, but when we all, when we all know the guy's got to make the big shot at the end, it's kind of hard to put the the draw. I just watched the Giannis Antetokounmpo movie, and I love that guy. But yeah, it's like, oh great, and then you were drafted and went to the NBA and won the championship. Like, it's, it's a little trite. It's 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 a great real life story, but it's not a great story story. So your book Odd Man Rush was recently adapted as a film. I have a little bit of insight into how that kind of works. I, I worked for a while on a book about a, a, a Disney movie. It's called Million Dollar Arm. It's about a, an agent who went to India and found cricket players and then tried to, well, succeeded in getting them signed as pitchers in the majors. And I was on set sitting there with the real guys watching them film the scene where oh. they have the successful tryout. And it was a surreal thing to be able to witness as a fly on the wall. So what was it like watching someone else be you. Now, I know you wrote the screenplay for the movie, so it wasn't as if somebody took your story and ran with it. That having been said, not did you learn anything about yourself? Did you get any insight into the meaning of your life, seeing a team of Hollywood professionals interpret who you are? Yeah. Well, I still, to this day, I, I, yeah, you're right. I wrote it with the director. So it does, there are things that, you know, it's like adapted and, and there's things that are, you know, massaged to try to, to try to make there be more drama when there isn't. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say still, the first thing I'd say is I'd, I, in a heartbeat, I'd still would have traded go, being good enough to go to the NHL and not writing about it. Um, so that, that, that still holds true. It doesn't, it, uh, you know, it's, it was just another way to, um, to kind of relive it as far as, I mean, I, I actually learned a lot about, the the level of respect I have now for actors, you know, it's it's like it's like watching a really good player in whatever sport, and you see him do the awesome move in the game, and you're like, oh my god, he's so talented. But then you're like, oh shit, this actually that guy was probably on the ice for like the last five years practicing this at the end of practice, and you see kind of what goes into the you know the process I'm talking about. And being on set and seeing the actors, there was nothing really new. I mean, like having written most of the words and knowing the story kind of to death, it was like there was nothing like no insights into me. But it was incredibly interesting watching the characters, the actors get into character and seeing what they're like. You know, some of these some some of them were going to be kind of hanging out with each other because there was this aspect that was cool where it was kind of like being on. You know, we we filmed in a small town. It was these guys from all over that came. So there was that sort of team type of, you know, not to be like kind of, you know, but but it it did feel like this was like a very similar to the way that 
when I was going over and playing Europe, you don't really know the guys and you got to become friends quickly. And everybody's kind of got their own quirks. Like some of the actors just like didn't hang out with others. And some guys got along, some guys hated each other. So just being able to be, see that dynamic from a distance was, it was interesting. So let's move on to talking about the stuff that would, um, uh, inspire your next memoir discussion materials tales of a rookie wall street investment banker to what extent was you're talking to a guy who i was in a band and i had silver leather pants and then things went weird with our manager and then all of a sudden i was going to fordham university a year later because it was like the most respectable way to just back out of that and move forward with my life how 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 uh, serious were you about business or finance and how much was it just that business school was the thing to do when the hockey thing reached its conclusion um i mean it, it was it was not i mean it, it was not a smooth transition out of hot it was finish playing hockey wrote the book sort of like what i was a bitch i didn't heed my mother's advice i was being a bitch in my room for probably a year kind of just like oh my god i didn't like this is my life so it's like it's not like most people are just this is like when their lives begin, you know, you're like 25, you did something, you weren't as good as you hoped. Now it's time to go do something else. And so it took a little bit of time to like pull myself up and then say, all right, what, what, um, you know, what's next? I, I just having grown up, my, my dad's a businessman. He works, you know, he's, he's worked for himself for a long time. And, and I'd always, you know, there was a level of interest. The problem is when the, your whole life is kind of all revolves around one thing and that's taken away, It you do kind, you got to go with a couple hunches. And my hunch was like, all right, this guy's my dad. I'm related to him. Probably going to have a gene, one or two genes that'll be similar. I might have interests if I give myself a shot. So you got to like, it, there was this part of me that was like, look, I don't know what I want to do, but I know business school is probably like, I do have some stuff I'm curious about why not give it a shot and, and apply? So it was sort of like going not on a lark, but it was definitely like, I feel like I might have be predisposed to to wanting to do something in this world, but I got to educate myself on like, what are the options? So that's, that's how it up there. In the end, how, I mean, I, we, I know the end of the story, but when you look back on that, how interested did you end up being in business? What sort of natural aptitude did you find in yourself? Well, business, I, because I still work at where I work now at airmail, I, I, I am, I do pretty much all the business stuff. So mm -hmm. business for sure is, is an interest of mine. I do enjoy that. I ended up going into finance after like investment banking, after business school, that particular division of, of business I would say like not not my strong suit, and I I think that was clear in in what I wrote about. But um, still, it's like anything else. When you play hockey, it's what you want to do is you want to win the game and you want to score the game winner. But what does that mean? That means over the summer you got to do power skating and you got to do all the shit that's not that fun, but that allows you and gives you you know the ability to then succeed. And I kind of always viewed, which is sort of what happens in business school, if you don't really know what you want to do, but you want to get understand like very quickly in an intense environment, how businesses work, banking, investment banking is a pretty good way to do it as sort of a holding pattern, which then allows you to go, you know, it, it allowed me to do what I do now. 
So you went to work at uh, Deutsche Bank, which is probably most famous now to those of us on the outside of the industry as I think the last big bank that was willing to lend Donald Trump money. That's sort of they've sort of become synonymous with him in the public mind. Um, my notion of what Wall Street is actually like was largely is largely formed by the Michael Lewis book Liar's Poker, which granted was written like 35, 40 years ago now. Um, but let's use that as a starting point. Yeah. Uh, in, in what ways is the financial industry in your, in your experience, in what ways is it what we all assume it is for better and largely for worse? And to what extent is it not that? Um, well, I, I would, you know, the thing is I saw it from the perspective of somebody just at the very, very bottom rung. So I think, you know, there's, there's no doubt that what the, you know, it, it, there, there's, there are characters and there are people that are like a little too big for their britches and that need to get taken down a, a few notches. Those people absolutely exist. And I think the nature of the work you know, they're, they're, it, it's just easier. It's, I mean, I felt a certain way about it. And I think when, before I started, it's just, I had no idea how it worked. And I, I was probably a pretty good, like, if you're trying to just pick someone off the street and be like, all right, what's finance all about? I probably would be your general person that you're talking about where it's like, oh, it's like kind of these dickheads that are, you know, going to high rises and wearing this and just like stealing money. And, and, I, I think getting exposed to it, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. They are helping businesses stay afloat. And but but what does that mean? Sometimes it's businesses like, you know, that maybe are a little bit crooked. So there's always going to be people that capitalize on those opportunities. So sure, they're shady characters, just like they're shady characters all over the place. But I think the biggest revelation for me was like being at the bottom and what I what was interesting and made me want to write about that world is that like it is really the shit work like and it's not knowing what you're doing it's basically being lost 95% of the time and having to 100% of the time make it seem like you're not lost and 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 you put someone that's that is motivated to please which most people are when they're young bankers um or else you wouldn't put up with all the shit you're motivated to please your bosses and you're in a high intensity environment. Um, I think it just, it makes for a lot of great comedic situations that are like, you know, there's drama, but, um, and at the time it feels like, you know, everything, like the stakes are incredibly high, but um, they really, they really aren't. They're not as, it's, it's not as uh, life or death as, you know, you spend so much time. And I think that's the other thing is like the problem the the way that people view banking is like, they're so, you know, these huge egos, that's because they spend all their lives. There's no perspective. Like most of these people, like they, their identity is, is when they reach, you know, whatever the 44th floor of their office, which is not, which kind of makes it feel like this is the be all end all. And, and one of the things I was always trying to do, which is difficult when you're actually in the moment is to be like, all right, like this is not like, this is okay if I, like, fuck up this model or, like, I don't do this right or this number's made up. Like, things will still, world's going to keep going. And, you know, no one's forcing you to do it. So, um, I don't know if that answers the question, but it it it's it took me a book to try to sort it out. Is it fair to say that at a certain point you realize that, yeah, you, you look, 
we all know, like nobody really knows what they're doing, right? Like the greatest money, ma- I don't know anything about finance. And I know that the greatest money managers very often don't beat, you know, uh, the, just the Dow, Dow Jones industrial, industrial average. So a, you came to realize that a lot of times you didn't know what you were doing, but is it fair to say that you feel like a lot of people were in that same predicament of, of, of having to bluff about the fact that nobody really understands. And that's not, you know, they say in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. People, people get to the top. You would think that there's five people in the world that can run studios that can predictably pick movies that will be successful. And yet the track record shows that as William Goldman famously said about Hollywood, nobody knows anything. So you felt like a lot of people were, were puffing up and making it seem like they were masters of the universe, as I think Michael Lewis put it, but that everybody was, was even the best people were hmm? Yeah, I think he, I mean, honestly, and having read that, and that is like the iconic book, you know, there are some differences. He was at a time when it was like, there was like a very big boom in in that specific, in what he was working in, in sales and trading and and the junk bonds. You know, I was kind of a more like, just, it was a bank that was sort of on the decline. There was a lot of scandal surrounding it. And and it was, I mean, in in truth, it was just a different division. It was, it wasn't as a, like sales and trading is a lot of wheeler dealer and like, you know, the big swinging dick guys that. What I was doing, you know, it, it, the the environment was you're in a cubicle and it's 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 more like isolated. It's not, um, and that's one of the things I wanted to shed light on in the book is that it is, it, it. I don't necessarily think they, at least where I was, it, they certainly didn't think they were masters of the universe. Maybe in their own head, but not like going out and thinking that like the world revolved around them because a bank is really an agent, and you're not. They're they're, you know, they're they're not. They're just helping people do deals and they're not actually their ass isn't really on the line. And the other thing I would say about the the older bankers that I worked with is, you know, there, there were people that were just there was a great moment I had with a guy that just like he made my life at the time feel like hell for a period of time. And when I told him I was leaving and I said, you know, look, this is, you know, I appreciate the opportunity, blah, blah, blah. But this job's just not for me. And he said, look, I don't know if this job's for me either. And I remember thinking like, wow, like that, that's the first thing that guy ever told me that I feel like was like dead honest. And it was like really sad because I remember thinking, I was like, this guy's just trying to get through the fucking day. Like he he can do this job and he makes a good living, but like, he's not out there. He like deep down, it's not like he's going out there like so excited. He's just like, look, he probably fell into it from school and got an opportunity and here he is 30 years later, like in his corner office and probably not as fulfilled as, you know, he wishes he would be. So on your way out, you wrote a resignation email that a website called dealbreaker.com said belonged, quote, in the pantheon of Wall Street's greatest fuck y'all emails of all time. I read the email. I'll I'll confess I didn't totally understand it. Can you break it down for us liberal arts folks? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, I, I don't, the, the, the email was really just like, I had one really good friend there. And I remember over the course of, of my time, I just took note. I had like seven or 10 things. I was like, this is just, you know, that were very like niche jokes, Mm -hmm. like that were not, they, they, they're not, as you said, they're not going to land with, because the crowd was really the crowd of one that I was trying to please, which was my friend. I was like, I think this will make him laugh. And he was going to get the email and he was on my floor. That's who you send the email to the people on your floor that you work with. So it wasn't, you know, that whatever the the words that were used by the 
pub, you know, the the website that published it. I don't. I I, I certainly wasn't saying fuck y'all to anybody. It was more just, you know, in my eyes, it was like I'm just gonna like maybe call bullshit on some of this stuff. Like, hey, I pretended to know. Like, I feel so good not to have to pretend to know what like you know. Uh, polyoxyapoline is like even though i spent you know a year working on a deal that revolved around that compound like this is like i mean at some point just be able to write an email as myself and that was the you know i spent two years at a bank just writing emails of some weird version of myself like that i was like this is i just need to like let myself loose for you know one email yeah, it wasn't as flamethrowing as I expected it to be based on its reputation, right? You were just dipping out of corporate speak on your way exactly, at, at, yeah. at the door. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to run something past you. Uh, I've brought up a million times. This is sort of uh, a, a topic that I return to a lot. It's not my original idea. I can't remember who I got it from. I'd love to give them credit, but I can't. Um, the gist of the notion is this. Far too much of the real top-tier intellectual capital in the world, but in America is engaged in finance and in the legal system because there's a lot of money to be made there and the finance system and the, the legal world contribute relatively little of value to the commonwealth of society. And some might argue, take, take a lot off the table. It just as somebody who's been, I, I understand, you know, you were not sitting in the corner office, but has been, who's been a lot closer to that action and that culture than I ever will be. What do you make of that? That so much of the talent in our, in our country goes and works in something that doesn't make anything. Well, I would say this, first of all, I, 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 in my experience, both at business school where I dealt with, you know, we would do stuff with the law school, my experience at a bank where every deal you did and anything you touched, there was lawyers on it. And where I work now, where I talk to lawyers almost every day, they are, they're, they're intellectually, like I have, I think they're a notch or two above. So I would put them at the top. Okay. And I think that's the oddest because typically they get paid by the hour, um, at least in my, you know, on a retainer, but they're the ones that's definitely um, sort of an odd dynamic because they, most of the times I'm like, running the lawyers trying to figure something out and um you know they they are i think it's a matter of like risk and i think there's less risk being a lawyer for sure just be right right but but as far as you know i i guess a couple things come to mind one is i don't necessarily know if that holds true as far as like where the talent is going nowadays because like i certainly was not in the top bucket of of my business school and i went to banking and a lot of people were similar to me um, there were a lot of people that were doing like their own thing that were going to like, I'm going to start a fucking company. Like, I don't need any valid. Like I was at a bank partially because I was like, I need validation that like I, a bank will hire me like that meant, you know, for, for better or worse, it was sort of like, you know, a little bit of an insecurity. And I was like, well, I, am I smart enough to work at a bank? It's really hard. And then you'd get there and you're like, all right, like this is, you can get through it. Um, but I think the, the intellectual capital there, there was plenty that was going to startups and crypto, you know, at the time that was kind of when I was in business school starting up and, you know, so I, I do think that there's, there's more, it's, it's maybe people that think that they are at the tippy top, but actually aren't. So that, that's maybe a better way I would say in my head to summarize who's ending up in finance. There are people that 
um, you know, assume they're the the top of the class, but maybe that's that's just it's not factual. It's not actually how it is. I think usually the smartest one is not the one that's going around being like, I got the job at the bank. They're they're over there doing their thing, like going to building something massive without having to make big all you know proclamations about it. Um, and then I, the other thing, though, in, in the banker's defense, I do, you know, as I said before, like we specifically I, I, I have such a difficult time making like big, broad, you know, sweeping statements like we did. We were a lender like we Deutsche Bank. It was that was the main thing. And so what we're doing is we certainly aren't in there like making, you know, whatever important thing that is going to get this person to and from their job every day. But, you know, what we would do is like lend to the company that does do that. And so that's one of the cool things that I found is like and in, in what I in, in the book, some of the anecdotes that were most, I think, powerful, or at least when I wrote them, why I liked writing about them is like dealing with the clients, not because I was like, oh, I, you know, like I'm client facing and I it was because like they were more interesting. They were like, like you said, they were doing shit like there were whether it was like oil and gas drillers, like these were guys that from like, you know, middle America or West Virginia, wherever that are, that, you know, this is, this is, they're doing something and, and you can, they're just, they, it's like a necessary evil dealing with a bank for companies if you get big enough. So um, I don't think it's the worst thing to have semi-smart people, you know, helping figure out which companies get financing and that's what banks do. And the lawyers help vet that. But I, I don't, I also think the 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 risk takers. I, I would be so much more inclined to favor in my head I, above intellectual capital. I would. I, I think the one thing that trumps that is is people that are ambitious and driven and hardworking and maybe have enough intellectual capital. Like that's what I, I would prefer to be around. Well said. Well said. Uh, your your first book was excerpted in uh, Vanity Fair, which was at the time edited by Graydon Carter, right? And you now work with him. Um, uh, full disclosure, my son's uh, first name is Graydon. So I, I've been I've been following his work going back to when I was pretending to understand the jokes in Spy Magazine in like 1991. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, yeah. Uh, what has the nature of your connection been with him over the years? Yeah, he, so... When I started at business school, they make a big stink about how you're going to meet people from all over the world and you're going to be sitting next to somebody from going to be sitting next to like, you know, a Korean that speaks 10 languages. So they they the first thing they do is they call you up and they tell you who's on your learning team. And it's five people. And it's and so I it's you know, they call my name and then they call this other guy's name and we're sitting next to each other. And this is the first person I meet that's going to be in my learning team and start talking. And he's literally lived my we went to the same schools growing up grew up across the park so i'm thinking jesus like either they've really screwed this up or they know something i don't know which is to pair me with someone that's basically like lived my life um and it turned out as i got to know him it, it, it and and to this day one of my best friends it, it was one of Graydon's sons oh i see and so i i during business school i'd only met i think i i went maybe twice to his parents' house and, and met Graydon. And, you know, that, that was, it wasn't like I developed like some close rapport with, with Graydon. Um, but I knew of him, he knew of me. And then when I left banking, 
it was just kind of fortuitous timing. He was starting something up and knew that I was available and we started talking and that's kind of the genesis of airmail. I've been quoting endlessly something that he said on Bill Simmons podcast when he stepped down from Vanity Fair, which is that he feels that he's a, a 20th century person living in the 21st century. I don't know if you're shaking your head, like maybe he's expressed yeah. that more than once. I, 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 I just relate to that. So full when we're talking about the, the internet of words going to the internet of a video and all that, that's, I'm like, yep, that's that Graydon Carter thing over and over okay. and over again. I'm, I'm done. You guys have fun. I'm going to be reading books about things that happened in 1913. Uh, the first, one of the first terms I learned was mid-century modern right i'm still not clear on what that means my wife says it all the time <laughs> so she, it's something about like like style and, and yeah. that's that's kind of one of the most fun things i have because i completely i mean where our offices and where he used to live was on bank street and we had a little like we're on the ground floor of bank street when we started airmail and it felt like you were like i would i was uptown you know it was 2018 i guess was when at the very beginning and i'd take the subway i'd take it down to 14th street and then I'd make that turn right by the hospital to go down to Bank Street. And I was back. I was in like it was in like 1910, yep. like just being on that street. Then I'd go down and I'd walk in the office. I would get made fun of because of what I was wearing. And, you know, you, you know, the, everyone in there would, that started almost in there smoking. And there's like, you know, this like it was it was what. Yeah. I mean, what you said is totally rings true. And um, it's. Yeah, I, I I don't know most of the references to this day that when he talks about people, but that's kind of the fun because there's, you know, I do have a computer and I, you know, am able to look these people up. So so what does a CEO do at Airmail? What does that even mean? So a COO. Oh, I'm okay. Not, yeah, yeah. He's the so, CEO. He's, he's I was, great. I was, that was baffling me why he would, I mean, with all due respect, Bill, I was wondering why he would appoint you. No, no, no. Yeah, you're the chief, the you're the, you're, yeah, you're the chief operating officer. I see. Well, I'm I see. like, I'm like when, when I, I'm as close to a banker as Airmail has. So I, I so yeah, basically anything that touches Excel or numbers or dealing with investors and, you know, kind of being able to get a handle of the company at a very high level, see where things are going, what we're doing, um, it's it's really like a very it's a role about quantifying things um whether it's like you know on a given day it could be like well this issue is x this many words and you know we've we've got you know this advertiser needs this many impressions to fulfill you know our obligation and figuring out how the numbers fit together to make sure that we you know fulfill our obligations for all the stakeholders do you feel like after the twists and turns of your professional life so far this is finally are you finally where you're supposed to be it's it's i i was actually talking to someone the other day about it and it it's i don't know if i could have handpicked i don't i know i could not have like i am i am surrounded by people that very quickly went from colleagues to friends and i don't say that like like i like they're actually friends like i'll talk to them and it's it's I just the sensibility that I share with the people I work with is stronger than even when I was playing hockey, I think, which is really the the most exciting thing, because to be able to like interact day to day with people that are on your page and like your wavelength is one thing I found. It certainly was not the case in, when I was banking. That was like that was painful for me because everyone was, you know, they really most of the people did buy into that. I got to like bluff and make this 
And the beauty of like a publication, especially, you know, Graydon has a history where he started, like you mentioned with Spy, um, and even before like a satirical sort of mindset. And that definitely filters down and and is throughout the entire company. Um, it it's it just makes it 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 makes it actually fun to 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 work and you are motivated to do it. It's also starting a new business. There's so many different things that are exciting about it. Um so yeah, it, it marries a lot of interests I have. I still can, you know, the, the business thing, what I learned in business school, I do enjoy it. Like that is intellectually interesting and um, you know, trying to figure things out, but also being able to to be around people that are like minded. You ever play hockey anymore? I don't. Yeah, yeah I, I I haven't in a long time. It's a young man's game. It it is, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's it's it that left me that part of. I think I'll watch it, but I don't. It's a young man, yeah, and I, I don't have the. I, I don't want to put equipment on. Like that's what it's come to. I don't want to like smell bad at night. Yeah, that's fun. It's as you're saying it. I I'm 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 smelling old jock straps and and stuff like that i get it yeah it's even the hands that was the biggest thing like Mm -hmm. the gloves get so bad yeah and then you know you'll come home at night and and you're like you know it's it's just where would i put the equipment there's all sorts of like logistical things that when you lose the love for it it's like well this is now I feel like a parent. Like this is a pain in the ass. Right. Yeah. You live in Manhattan. Space is at a, a premium. Are you familiar with the band Guar by any chance? Does that mean anything? I'm not. Okay. Well, then it's a, it's a long road that's not worth going down. The singer is sadly deceased, but performed in this enormous, ridiculous costume. And one time I met him, and he was carrying it around in a garbage bag. And I'll never forget the smell of the guy's costume. And that I said jockstrap. I was actually thinking of the lead singer of Guar when you mentioned that. And I can see where. It's a nice memory to have, but maybe it's time to let it belong to the past. Well, it's been fun talking to you about your past as detailed in not one, but two books, Discussion Materials, Tales of a Rookie Wall Street Investment Banker, and also Odd Man Rush, a Harvard Harvard Kids Hockey Odyssey from Central Park to somewhere in Sweden with stops along the way. Also, a somewhat recently released feature film. Thank you so much for your time, Bill Keenan. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun.